George, wait a minute. If the man is dead, he must be here, right? We'll find out if he's here, okay? If he is here, then I want you to knock it off about seeing a man in black and all that rot. Because, love, the dead don't walk around. Except in very bad paperback novels. They're dead and that's that. Do we agree? If you say so. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rollet. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 169. Nice, by the way. <laughs> Back to Cole's choice. What are we talking about today? Well, Halloween rolls on, and what a great day for it. We actually have the first day of fall weather in Austin, so it's perfect. I actually had to wear a jacket this morning. You just got me an early birthday present, which is my new horror movie watching blanket, and that is literally that because it is covered with horror movie icons, and it says that in big bloody letters. So we are feeling very seasonally appropriate, and to that end, I have chosen Let Sleeping Corpses Lie from 1974, which is my favorite title for it, but it's also known as The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue. It's also known as Do Not Profane the Sleep of the Dead. It's also known as Don't Open the Window for some, <laughs> for some reason. reason. <laughs> I'm not sure. You said you like Let Sleeping Corpses Lie the best? Yes. I think I actually like Manchester Morgue the best. It's directed by Jorge Grau, and it stars Ray Lovelock, Arthur Kennedy, Christina Galbo, and Fernando Hilbeck. And it is about a couple that find themselves thrown together in strange circumstances that are harassed by a police investigator in the English countryside and are implicated in a series of murders that are actually being committed by zombies that have been brought back to life by a device designed to kill insects via ultrasonic radiation. Now, this is a Spanish-Italian co-production, but its identity as English, which may be why you prefer that title so much, that seems central to the movie. With its science-gone-wrong underpinnings, how do you feel like this slots in as part of that British strain of horror that has a sci-fi angle like Village of the Damned, the Quatermass series, X the Unknown, Day of the Triffids, a lot of those that we really love? I see where you're coming from with that question because... That Brit sci-fi horror stuff was rocking from the atomic age all the way through the counterculture period. It had so much to say about the government deep state and class and gender roles and all of that cool stuff. And I like that concept that you see of British isolationism as well. But I differ with you a little bit. I think it seems more like a product of the 70s rather than a regional thing, strictly speaking. Because I realized this would play sometimes on a double bill at the drive-in with The Last House on the left, and I think that's pretty telling. And so even with some of the exteriors being filmed around England and the farming angle, it seems like with that female streaker at the beginning, this is a little bit more of a European influence on the sort of still vaguely swinging London of the 70s. And I guess also I think of the director Jorge Grau as having a distinctly European identity. 
What about you, though? I see it maybe as kind of a bridge, as the tail end of that period that you're talking about. Ah, got it. Good point. Because their take on Cold War paranoia and atomic fears, that plays a little differently than ours in the States and then other European nations. It's more reserved, I think. It's a little less frantic than how we treat it in the States. And that restrained quality that it has actually makes it feel more grim to me in the long run. It's not as much fire and brimstone, and even with Grau's influence, it's still more stiff upper lip, and it lends a melancholy air to the proceedings. I think there's some xenophobia, at least as expressed by the characters, not the sensibility of the film, and that definitely puts it in that British sensibility to me. And there's also the clash of cultures here that becomes a running theme. The squares versus the hippie holdovers a clash that we probably wouldn't have seen had this been set in a less uptight culture like Spain or Italy. In Italy at the same time, Ray Lovelock was playing cops, if that puts that all in perspective. Here, the same haircut puts him up for consideration as a drug-addled homicidal Satanist. And also gay, but also incredibly straight at the same time. Nobody can make up their mind as to what aspect they hate more. Yeah, I can't think of anywhere but the UK that this would have been as natural an assumption or series of assumptions about his character. I think also it feels like a little bit, I may be reaching here, tell me what you think, of a sideswipe at the US and how we were currently reaping the sorrows of our permissive ways, I think, lumping this in with the kind of hysteria you saw post-Manson. I still think the overall comment is the class element, like you said, it's really more about the anti-squares, because they seem to think if you look a certain way, they'll believe anything of you. If you have long hair, you could be up to no good all the time, including pedophilia, Satanism, whatever. They just stop at nothing with the bad traits that they would apply to you. And to me, it seems like reflecting back on what the over 50 crowd seems to be believing at this point. Hey, hey, easy with that. (laughs) (laughs) back then. I mentioned my birthday present you got me. That puts me in to the over 50 crowd, this birthday coming up in a couple of weeks. It sure does, so get a haircut. Now, this was released between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. How does this compare to the Romero stuff for you? I'm going to defer to you quite a lot with that idea because I think you're much more of a Romero scholar than I am, but I tend to think of Romero as being a commentator on America. And it clearly borrows a lot from Living Dead, but I don't consider that to be a bad thing. So it's homage to this great storytelling structure that Romero could create. Because I think you could tell this kind of story in a ton of different settings, and I would watch it every time. And like Dawn of the Dead, I like the use of the confined space Here, it's the close-minded village, if anything, even though you're in the countryside. And that holdover police force, like in Living Dead, that can't keep up with the times, can't tell the good from the bad. Yeah, I think you're right on the money. I think it's a nice counterpart to the Romero stuff. And I think Grau actually does a couple of interesting things to grow the mythology a little bit. But we have to pay our respects and put him in the conversation because George Romero will always be the king of the genre. He laid down the blueprint and then expanded it. The genre doesn't exist as we know it without him. He made an incredible blueprint. I'm so glad that we have it. And I think you're right about this part, too. I don't think Grau was trying to lay on the social significance as much as Romero was. But I still think there's enough in there to make it interesting, even if only mostly by accident. 
I like that you bring this up because there are those still that are pretty insistent that that wasn't even Romero's intention, especially with Night of the Living Dead, which I can see because he said things along those lines, especially about casting Dwayne Jones. It wasn't that he specifically wanted a black actor. He just cast the best actor that auditioned. And I believe all of that, and at the same time, you can never take the context out of the conversation. We exist in America the way we are, and you can't suddenly remove all of those things that we grew up with, the legacy that we're living with, and remove that from the conversation. So I think he can be right on the money and say, yeah, I just chose the best actor, and at the same time, that simple choice, quote unquote simple choice, is a reflection of society and therefore a comment on it. Yeah, it's that leave politics out of horror crowd that doesn't seem to recognize that all art is political in one way or another. And we talk about this a lot. One of the great things about good horror is just what you were saying, how our collective fears and anxieties bubble to the surface, even subconsciously. And truly, politics is life. It informs everything that we do every day. And so you can't remove it and don't need to. We just don't live in a post-anything world. Now, all that being said, Groud does not foreground a lot of that in this movie. He doesn't skewer consumer culture so explicitly, for example, the way that Romero did in the Monroeville Mall. But he does give you a few things to think about as he's doling out the scares along the way. We'll come back to that idea and expand on it in a little bit, but here at the beginning... This episode is an opportunity, I think, to do one of our favorite things, and that is shine a light on things and performers and creators that we think deserve more attention. And that definitely goes for a couple of the principles here. First, let's talk about Ray Lovelock. What are your impressions of Ray Lovelock? Oh, Ray Lovelock, I adore you. He died, unfortunately, early. He was just about 67 years old, and he was a silver fox until the end. Okay, let me talk about Ray Lovelock. Should I talk about his hair? (laughs) Or his beard? Or his body? Or his chin? Or his height? Or his singing? Or his smile? Or wearing a shirt half open, riding a motorcycle? Or standing with his hands on his hips? Or running in a leather jacket? I think we get the general impression of what your impressions are. Also, he's a really good actor. Yeah, I love him too. The space he occupies for me is that he's a classic handsome bastard a lot of the time. He is a perfect 70s dreamboat to me. Even more perfect, I think, in that he's got that slightly bad guy edge, even when he's doing the good guy parts. He's a favorite of ours, mostly from Italian rogue cop movies with great titles. Violent Rome, Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, which I think is our favorite. Yeah. Is there one called Slap the Lady Until Her Blouse Pops Open? That's one of the alternate titles. Okay. Meet Him and Die is another one. But he's a key figure in Italian genre film, period, during the 70s. He did horror. He did those poliziotteschi that we just mentioned. He even did a number of sex comedies that were very particularly Italian. He's more of a cult figure, but he had the goods, I feel like, to be a matinee idol. He's always charming and fun to watch. And he worked forever. And you can also go on YouTube and listen to his songs. Yeah, he actually had a band with another of our favorite Italian character actors, Tomas Milian. He looks like more of a Sean Cassidy, but he's got a lot more of an edge, like you mentioned. That's no knock against Sean Cassidy, by the way. You had the poster, right? I wish. 
Well, the second important name here in genre film is the director, Jorge Grau. This is your introduction to him, right? Do you feel like this is a good entry point for you? I think so. I mean, when I was reading about him, this seems to be a big high point. It's my first, as you mentioned, I haven't seen anything else of his. But in reading about him, he was a writer and a painter and a playwright. He sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I thought that part about his start in theater might appeal to you. And then he was just prolific behind the camera. 34 titles altogether, and more versatile than I think people give him credit for. A lot of those are documentary in nature. His early features were uniquely Spanish dramas and melodramas. Sadly, he's not widely discussed or appreciated, I think. So I hope this episode points at least a couple of people in the direction of a couple of his titles. There's a favorite move of his in this film that I absolutely love that I think really sets it apart for me. It's that repetition of the camera being close in and then drawing backward to get a different perspective on the player as if they're being watched. I love when he does that. Well, let's circle back around to some of that social commentary, some of those elements that we were talking about that pop up, intentional or otherwise. I think this is a great example in the opening credits how sometimes you just have to wait for circumstances to cycle back around to invest what you did with a new or a different significance. Because in this case, in the opening titles, there's a guy on the street in a surgical mask just going about his daily commute. And that's very timely now, obviously. And how distressingly easy is it, I assume even today, to find people who might be zombies when you go out and shoot B-roll of commuters on the street? And I do think a lot of this is intentional. I think he's making some statements from the very start because everything is cold and dark and gray. And that streaker that I mentioned gets the barest, see what I did there, <laughs> of notices. And there's so much pollution and crumbling infrastructure. It looks like the Bronx sometimes. I do like that streaker in the opening credits as kind of a signpost, a sign of the times. Going to the other end of that spectrum, I think the most intentional of these themes is probably the ecology science angle. Those damn ultrasonic rays. Here, I think it falls slightly in line with a lot of the more ecologically minded horror of that era. So much of that stuff in the 70s was dealing with this idea and it manifested itself as Nature Strikes Back or rogue animal movies a lot of the time. In this case, we were so busy asking ourselves that we could kill all the insects and revive the dead, we didn't stop to ask if we should. Then you have the sister of one of the protagonists who's an addict, so she's kind of portrayed as the walking dead in her own way. Yeah, I mean, I knew this beforehand. Did you know that being on heroin gives you super strength? She's got something in common with zombies there. Yeah, I don't know where they get this from, but heroin and being dead apparently makes you very strong. And then... I think most important of all, we talked about this a little bit already, you have the rise of Thatcherite politics that's happening right about here in the UK, and then the aforementioned squares versus hippies. It is not to delve too deeply in the political timeline, but it was conservative, and then labor at this time, and then Margaret Thatcher very shortly after this. And I think there's some great commentary going on here, as you mentioned. Because the squares are square, and they are violent and mean. Yeah, at the end, the sergeant actually laments not being able to be more violent if we just had a free hand with these criminals. He wants to be judge, jury, and executioner, basically, which he actually turns out to be. It feels like they are positioning this a little bit 
as this conservative wave that was soon to dominate British politics is the answer to a lot of problems. Make of that what you will, especially in light of the ending, which is essentially the hippie having the last word. So there's plenty to chew on here besides the scares. It's quite a bit different, I was thinking, in retrospect, from our only previous zombie effort on the show so far, and that was more in the original zombie voodoo style. We did I Walked With a Zombie. And any social commentary in that was dealing fleetingly with one, maybe two issues at best. But by the time we get to 1974, the genre is encompassing a much larger set of ideas. And I think you've said this before, it takes horror to be kind of progressive in that way. Horror is such an interesting genre for me for the reasons that it's so contradictory like that. You often have, and audiences want, that conservative ending where everything is set right, but mayhem up until that. They want to have that cake and eat it too. It's like with The Invisible Man. There are certain stories being told that bring these issues up. And we just watched Halloween Kills last night. I've been actually thinking about it quite a lot, and I've got some stuff to say about that, but I think... Even as divided as we may be on how we felt about that film, it is facing an issue like victimhood and survivorship in a way that other films aren't doing in an adult way. Yeah, we definitely have diverging opinions about that one. I'm not sure that it's entirely successful, but I find that theme to be quite interesting and not something that is brought up quite a lot. Dealing with an entirely different set of problems... You tried to watch this once before, right? And you didn't get very far into it because of the dubbing of the voices, particularly Ray Lovelock. Yeah, Jesus Christ. It's like the <laughs> 1970s body hospital. I swear to God, if you listen to this again, this is a Michael Palin character. There are moments when it is so ridiculously and above all, unnecessarily arch. So the first time I tried to watch it on my own and all I could hear was, Hello, Gavner. <laughs> What you doing, birds? It, and it was just awful. I couldn't stand it. I can't even obviously do the accent well. So it was a little better this time, but to me it's quite distracting. So it didn't stop you, obviously, this time. But it seems like maybe, do you think you remember it being more exaggerated than it turned out to be, or was that legit? No, I think I was legitimately bothered by it. And I think I was correct in terms of how off the mark it is. Would you go so far as to call it the dub of the dead? <laughs> <laughs> well, it never put me off that much. It's funny Ooh, to me now, yeah. going back and watching it with you, knowing how you feel about it. I get a great deal of pleasure out of that. Now that I've put Michael Palin in your head, if you watch it again, you will hear Monty Python, I swear. Should I go back and try to recut our opening scene with a little bit more English on that accent? Uh, no, thank you. But unfortunately, our copy just had that version, so I don't know if any other version exists, but that's the way that you get to watch it. And it didn't have subtitles either, so it's not like we could turn the sound off and just read it. God help us if we ever try to do Oliver on this show. <laughs> At least that's appropriate. Well, back to this. There are some classic horror movie moves here that I like. I brought this up already. We have the old strangers thrown together by bizarre slash horrific circumstances trope. His bike gets wrecked and he just assumes he can drive her car. It's 1974, I suppose, so that maybe excuses some of that. This guy's a real jerk. Well, she's no better, but yeah, with that voice coming out of his mouth, move over, bud, it's just ridiculous. Sorry, I'll stop. I won't say any more. And then as they're driving, we have the classic harbinger of grim tidings on the car radio news. 
Followed closely by the ominous appearance of the mortuary truck, it really sets a great tone right away by pretty efficiently serving up these little fun details without it still feeling like paint by numbers. And then a real strong suit for me. These locations in the countryside are just fantastic. It is beautiful to look at. It does look so good. I would have assumed that this was made completely in England, but part of something that you have given to me is my latter film education, realizing how many foreign productions traveled to other countries and made films as if they were native to those countries. Sort of like Devilfish with Italians <laughs> playing Floridians. Yeah, I was really surprised myself to find out that this was largely filmed in Italy, and then they just judiciously sprinkle in the English locations that tie it all together. And they chose really well with oh, yeah. those locations. Absolutely. Most crucially, the hospital and the churchyard, I think. And then that super gray and dingy opening that you talked about being in the Manchester city center. The way all of that comes together, I never once questioned the Englishness of the proceedings. I also really like that so much of the film does take place outside and during the day, which is really effective because the situations are scary enough without needing total darkness. Well, that leads me to something that I wanted to talk about. That's perfect. I'm glad you brought that up. Let's talk about that first zombie encounter when he gets out of the car and then she is smoking, waiting for him to come back. I so feel that Night of the Living Dead dread from that graveyard opening. Another scene that takes place in daylight and is still terrifying. This is a genuinely scary first zombie. They capture a great energy when they introduce the monster. How did it strike you? The same. I love how these zombies behave because physically they look like they just came out of the casket. Still fresh, but dead. You can't mistake them for anything else. And there's this relentlessness from that sense of repeating behaviors, but needing to keep moving at the same time. It doesn't have that slow, dragging, groaning stuff in quite the way that we would come to be used to. One of my favorite things about zombie movies that might be the most frightening part of things is the onset of the outbreak. And they do such a great job with that here. This slow unfolding, this proliferation that follows. Zombies typically have two things in their favor, especially in the countryside like this. The news not being able to keep up with the spread. So you have all of these pockets of people that are caught unawares. And then just the general unbelievability of the circumstances. Think about this now. Even if you were to get the news, what would you do with someone telling you that you need to protect yourself from the reanimated dead? And is that actually a different ballgame in 2021 versus 1974 and how the culture at large might react? Well, speaking of other Brit sci-fi horror, I like that same element of being one step behind all the way up through Shaun of the Dead and 28 Days Later, for example. And I think you're so right. You don't look at this first zombie and think, this is a zombie. You assume this is some deeply troubled person who is trying to harm you. Not that the apocalypse has come. Yeah, we have the advantage now that it's become such a part of contemporary horror folklore that we would know what to do, ideally. But this type of zombie was in its relative infancy when this came out. So it would be like someone telling you there were vampires all around in the 1970s. The idea has been around long enough that you might know a little bit about what to do with the information, but it's still wholly unbelievable. 
But that doesn't stop the zombies because we get some great eerie set pieces, I feel like. You've got this initial attack on the photographer with the flash going off in the background. It's such a nice touch and it really adds a feeling of helplessness, I feel like, to that scene. Like somehow there's a witness, but that won't do anything to save you. And then being trapped in the cellar with the original zombie we have here, Old Guthrie, which I love his name. It's such an unzombie-like name. It's so claustrophobic in that set piece, and it's a really nice touch that they escape essentially into an open grave. But we've seen some of this before. Is all this enough, or do you need to further innovate? Because like I said, Grau does add a couple of new touches to the mythology here. My favorite is the pseudo-religious ritual element when Guthrie uses blood to anoint new zombies. That's really fun. And then he makes a slight change. What can kill them? The standard headshot doesn't do it. So even if we have been following the folklore before 1974, it isn't necessarily to our advantage. Finally, fireworks. And I love that a lantern comes to the rescue there. Then you've got these weird industrial strength coffins that I like as a detail. Me too. I love that casket design. And the gore, it actually increases appropriately as the film goes along. The zombies feeding on the cops' organs in the churchyard, that's appropriately traumatizing. And then all of that culminates in the axe attack at the hospital. There are some brutal and realistic depictions of violence there. One of the reasons that the film succeeds for me is that they balance all of that social commentary stuff with legitimate scares and horrifying gore. First and foremost, this is a horror movie. Yeah, don't forget about the homicidal baby. I think maybe that's my favorite innovation. And like you mentioned, that blood need that old Guthrie has, he's on this mission to wake the other people, and he almost forgets about George on the sidelines as he's doing it. There seems to be more going on than we can comprehend. And we said this before, there are these subtle changes to the standard story, and you bring in good actors and good settings and good pacing, and you can watch this over and over. So something I'm always interested in when I look at this genre, how did zombies go from these somnambulist religious slaves, practically, to homicidal brain eaters? Because we've got White Zombie with Bella Lugosi as kind of the jumping off point. We mentioned that we've discussed I Walked with a Zombie. You brought up more contemporary entries like Shaun of the Dead and 28 Days Later. How do we get from one to the other? Well, speaking of 28 Days Later... They expand into this mega speedy, kill crazy meth freaks, basically. I think it's all about the forces at work making you a zombie. Those forces are changing. You go from radiation to experimental drugs to pollution or chemicals. Everything has an effect. I think the thing that's most poignant, and you see that both in Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, it's as I get older, I see this through the lens of aging and dementia, that it doesn't matter who the person is or was or what relationship you had before with them, they don't remember that and they will kill you anyway. I think ironically enough that the turning point for all this might be a film that's not the most critically respected. Tell me. We have Tor Johnson in Plan 9 from Outer Space that I think is the prototype of the modern zombie, a forerunner of what we would eventually see in Night of the Living Dead. But I'm glad you bring up how this changes and what causes it, because I like the fact that the root 
fear stays the same. Whether it's the 30s or the 70s or the year 2000, this root fear is being hollow, a husk of your former self under the control of another force, even in death, having no peace ever. It's so sad. No agency, no ability to truly die. You don't have your soul anymore. And one of my favorite things in this that they use to explain all this, they take a moment to outline how there is a scientific precedent for this in the natural world. One of the brilliant things they do throughout this is keeping all kinds of things teetering just on the edge of reasonability. Old Guthrie still has us human instincts and habits. The prospect of the reanimated dead is the only outlandish thing. The characters' reactions to that are not. I'm glad you brought up our previous installment on the Invisible Man, because it's the same thing here. People can only believe what's reasonable to them, in this case, until it's trying to eat their liver. And so taking all of this into account, in addition to the social commentary and the way they ground just enough in reality, more than anything, I think this is just a fun movie. I like the outlandish and unbelievable parts just as much because of the smart and entertaining way that Grau assembles all of these ideas. Just as one example, you mentioned this briefly already, Ray Lovelock keeps finding himself in these ridiculous situations, our shared favorite, I think, being here. Look after this nurse that just had her eye plucked out by this homicidal baby. Yeah, and can you do this injection at the same time and just stand over here and you and I, me being the doctor, will consult upon these issues together. Yeah, so for skillful and then absolutely silly reasons at the same time, it's much better than you assume it's going to be or maybe than it has any right to be. Did you have as much fun with it? Oh my gosh, yes. I adored this. The only real sour note for me beyond the dubbing is the character of Edna. She is everything that I hate in female characters, especially in horror, because she is worse than useless. Just her ineffectuality? Yeah, do you remember the moment when she gets pulled out of the church by the cop and doesn't mention that George is over there struggling to get out? She just gets sort of carried away. She is awful. In her defense, she's dealing with a lot of shit here. She's the dumbest person on the planet. Well, one of the things that I feel like the film gets the most correct, on the other hand, is this ending. This finale is great. Everyone to the hospital. It turns up everything to 11 with axe fights and fire and a whole new crop of zombies that look like the worst prog band ever. And best of all, for me, it is a bleak ending. There's a serious implication of an unstoppable spread of this plague and much more bloodshed to come. The sergeant gets his, which we love to see, but at what cost? I don't know about you, but I find his killing to be incredibly satisfying. Oh, yeah. He was awful. He was a scumbag. I wanted to think not that these super hotties like George and Edna would be wiped out, but that nasty old men like him would be wiped out. Ultrasonic radiation does not discriminate, I guess, is the lesson here. It's so true. Well, let me ask you one last question before we get out of here. So we know that horror films frequently come in cycles. You've got bandwagon hoppers looking to capitalize on the popularity of a successful original. We had the slasher boom in the 80s, the teen ensemble stuff in the 90s like Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer. Now we were talking during the movie about how the zombie template can be a great metaphor for all kinds of things. 
But do you ever find yourself reaching a point of genre fatigue, a feeling like, okay, we need a five-year moratorium on zombie movies, or do you just take them title by title? I think you probably know the answer for me. I'm really just title by title. I also don't tend to buy into that whole, look at this new film that's breathing life into this fill-in-the-blank genre. I'd give a new zombie movie or werewolf movie or vampire movie or old dark house movie a go anytime. Yeah, I think I'm the same. I tend not to immerse myself in genre stuff, at least regardless of quality, to the point that I feel that way. We talk about this between ourselves at least a lot. There's a strata of horror film that I refer to as gas station horror movies. These are titles that are plucked out of bargain bins at truck stop by juggalos on their way to whatever horror convention they're on their way to that weekend that will watch literally anything. If I was doing that, then maybe I might reach a saturation point, but I try to curate what I watch a little more than that so I don't get there. So like you, I would never discount a genre entry just based on the type of movie is. If it's good, it's good. And speaking of good, do you have a good recommendation for us this time? I hope so. Well, I picked something that was also a co-production and also not filmed in either of the countries of Provenance. And it's about how some Brits get a major comeuppance because of their actions in Europe. And I picked Severance from 2006. This is a British-German film written and directed by Christopher Smith with Laura Harris, Toby Stevens, Tim McInerney, and Claudie Blakely, and it's about a corporate team-building retreat for a group of sales reps for a weapons manufacturer that goes horribly awry in the remotes of Hungary. It's very bloody and very violent. It definitely leans to the comedy side, but is pretty damn scary. I like everyone in it. I definitely, most of all, like to see team-building stuff devolve into a murderous rampage rather than trust exercises. Now, what did you pick? I picked Blood Ceremony from 1973. Have I seen this one yet? No, but I can't wait for you to watch it. Okay, great. This was also directed by Jorge Grau just the year before, and it stars Lucia Pose, Ava Allen, and Espartaco Santoni. It is an interpretation of the Elizabeth Bathory story in which an aging countess devises a hideous plan to restore and preserve her youth by killing, specifically, 610 nubile virgins and bathing in their blood. To me, this is Jorge Grau's best film. This is his masterpiece for me. I love that it, too, has a number of alternate titles, Blood Castle, The Bloody Countess, The Female Butcher. In this case, they all make sense, unlike Don't Open the Window. Yeah, because there's no window that anybody's leaning out of or comes through. Yeah, this one, Blood Ceremony, it is packed with atmosphere. It takes its time letting the horror unfold. You feel both the psychological pain of the Countess and the terror of her victims. It definitely succeeds as a period piece. I think it stands up to the best hammer horror in that regard. The settings and costumes are fantastic. You know how Spain is. You have castles just laying around everywhere to film in. And similar to how Grau works in some headier themes in Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, he does that here too. This is much less about gore and more about how women are forced to confront aging, most specifically the way that we put such an emphasis on the value of youthful beauty. But like this, 
he simultaneously doesn't let that weigh down the horror proceedings. He so deftly balances the serious with the grotesque and horrifying. I really hope people check out more of his work. At least these two titles. These are great for horror fans, I think. And Blood Ceremony is available in a great edition from one of our favorite labels, Mondo Macabro. So check it out. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Severance and Blood Ceremony. And that's a pretty short and sweet entry for Coloween, but we still have one coming. We still have our Magic Jack-O-Lantern episode coming at the end of the month on Halloween itself, where we're going to recount some of our favorite horror movies set in New England. But for now, that brings us to the end of episode 169. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. Throughout the month of October, I'm doing a series of readings from a great collection I have called 100 Ghastly Little Ghost Stories, and those are available to patrons at every level as a thank you for your support. We appreciate you very much. We've also added a simple donation button to the website, so if Patreon's not your thing and you'd rather just make a one-time PayPal donation to help keep the lantern lit, you can go to magiclanternpodcast.com and just look for the donate button in the upper right corner under the header, and that's in the main drop-down menu if you're on a mobile device. We appreciate everyone's support. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Spencer Seams, Keith Rich, Brian Sauer, Laura Cannon, the fine gentleman of Fuds on Film, Richard Sales, Andy Wolverton, Michael Cannon, and Ben Waldman. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. I wanted to say a special thanks to our dear friend Travis Trudell for reaching out to follow up with me on my health issues that I discussed back in our Grey's Anatomy episode. Just by way of update, both of my eye surgeries are complete now and the first one is fully healed. The second one just has a series of drops left that I'm administering, but it is all going according to plan. The neuropathy from the diabetes is still giving me a hard time, but we're working on that. I just started a new medication for it, which I was a little trepidatious about because it lists some pretty severe side effects, including suicidal ideation and uncontrollable tremors. But so far, it's only had the most minor effect on my balance, so we'll keep an eye on it. But I appreciate Travis for reaching out and everyone's concern and well wishes. Thank you, everyone. It also mentioned hostility as yeah. a possible symptom, and we're watching that one too. Your mom's watching that one. <laughs> How's that for hostile? <laughs> you can find our show on Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. Thank you to the two nice people that left us anonymous five-star ratings on iTunes this time around. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 